Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 15, Julia Simon Kerr, Credibility by Proxy. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Julia Simon Kerr. Julia is an associate professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law, where she teaches evidence and civil procedure. Her research, which is primarily in evidence, focuses on credibility doctrines and how they are shaped by cultural assumptions. Her latest article, entitled Credibility by Proxy, examines the rules allowing character evidence of a witness's truthfulness. Evidence scholars dating back to Wigmore have long criticized these character rules for having little or no empirical basis, in the sense that they don't help the jurors identify when a witness is likely to lie. Rule 609, for example, contemplates admitting a felony conviction for a bar fight on credibility grounds, even though the tendency toward violence, as seen in the bar fight, seems a peculiar proxy to use. Julia notably argues, however, that these rules were never intended to identify likely liars as an empirical matter. Rather, they are a reflection of a legal system historically focused on witness status. For Julia, such a status-based perspective is antithetical to the truth-seeking goals of the modern legal system. It perpetuates long-standing biases and ought to be abandoned. Julia, thanks a lot for agreeing to be on Excited Utterance. Pleasure to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Your article begins by arguing that, as a historical matter, the rules on impeaching credibility were more about status than anything else. Could you elaborate a bit more on the role of status in this credibility context? Historically, when witnesses were impeached, courts and attorneys came in with evidence of various character traits, which we still do, except that we're limited to truthfulness. But those character traits tracked concepts of what it was to be an honorable person. And one way to make that more tangible is to describe a difference based on gender lines. So for example, for women, for a time in the 1800s, attorneys would come in and try to impeach women with evidence that they lacked chastity. And it wasn't even that they were a prostitute. Maybe it was just they did something that was against the rules of chastity, like walking with a man who they weren't married with. The cultural notion was that for women to be credible, to have honesty and integrity was to comply with norms of chastity. And if you didn't comply or you didn't maintain your reputation, you did not have credibility. For men, I talk about this even more in the paper, being truthful was important. But what's interesting is that you could commit a bunch of crimes, as long as they were crimes involving violence, and that was not seen as affecting status and therefore didn't affect credibility. One of the things that surprised me most about your article was how much the status perspective explains some of at least what I perceive to be the anomalous features of modern evidence law in this area. Take, for example, the preference for reputation or opinion evidence over specific acts. Today, we often rationalize the preference for reputation or opinion as it being more efficient and you're avoiding mini-trials, but to me that always just seemed plain odd. 
Under your explanation, though, it makes perfect sense that reputation and social worth was originally the core of the inquiry, so reputation is exactly what the system is after. Do I have that right? And when you got into this area, is this what you expected to find? Yes and yes. Uh, so you, you have it absolutely right. Historically, your status was all about your reputation. That was the most important thing. If you violated social norms, you lost your reputation and your status. You sometimes had to move to a different part of the country to rebuild. So when these norms were being used, perhaps unwittingly, to shape credibility jurisprudence, reputation was a big deal. And I did, ex I expected to find that perhaps because I started writing about this a really long time ago, as far back as in college. I was writing about the connection between women's chastity and credibility, and that has everything to do with reputation. So Rousseau wrote that for a woman, reputation is the throne of her honor and her integrity. So in some sense, it's more important than actual behavior. And in fact, Mary Wollstonecraft critiqued that very claim, saying you're really creating rules that ask women sometimes to be dishonest in order to maintain their reputation and their credibility. And the whole thing is totally backwards. Does the status explanation that you propose extend beyond the credibility context, though? Why do the evidentiary rules preference reputation in, say, the 404A context as well? So character of the defendant or character of the victim, is that because the legal system is also interested in the status of the criminal defendant or the victim in a criminal case, or is that a different origin story? That is a really good question, and I can give only a cautious answer because I haven't done that research, but I think the origin story is the same. Most of the places where we look to character in the evidentiary system have to do with this notion that we need to know about status. It's just really important. It tells us a lot of things about who a person is, whether they're blameworthy, whether they're someone that we like, we don't like, and we want to know those things. And unfortunately, because of the way that these rules evolve, they tend to, even if they could evolve and be more modern, they don't tend to do that. They tend to cling to old permutations of what we think is relevant to character. Let me follow up on this piece about evolution of legal rules. What we have here is a historical status-based perspective that has been imposed on evidence law. And in evidence law, and I think law generally, we often retrofit modern justifications for the rules, even though those rules were constructed under very different and sometimes distasteful assumptions. Absolutely, yes. So these credibility rules were originally a function of status, but today we justify them on probative value grounds, that an untruthful character helps us determine whether the witness is lying. Is that kind of post hoc rationalization legitimate? I mean, on the one hand, it seems to me no. On the other hand, that kind of reframing seems to be part and parcel of the common law method of legal interpretation. Yeah, it's a kind of preservation through transformation thing. 
it can be legitimate to reframe the basis of rules because sometimes we hit on a good idea and maybe it was for a bad reason, but maybe there's actually a good reason. And if we can find that, then I don't have a problem with that per se. I think in this case, what I try to show in the piece is that the new rationalization, which is the idea that past untruthfulness is relevant to whether you're going to be untruthful again in the context of being a witness or being a defendant or a a party in a case, there's just no scientific justification for that assumption. And I go into the social science literature on this. It is the case that certain people lie more than others and people have certain personality traits. But it seems to be that you need to know an awful lot about someone and how they behaved in a particular scenario in order to make any kind of prediction that's better than chance about how they're going to behave in a future scenario. And the rules that we have are just wildly off the mark of being that specific, looking at conduct. What did you do on the witness stand in the past? Even that's probably not specific enough to learn about what you would do in the future on the witness stand. But what we have now is just all kinds of conduct. There's no reason to think that that's predictive of future behavior in terms of lying on the witness stand. So your proposal on how to reform the rule comes directly from this observation about the empirics. Right. So tell us what your proposal is. What I propose is that we eliminate, depends how you define impeachment rules, but that we eliminate impeaching with reputation, with prior criminal convictions. We eliminate basically 608 and 609 of the federal rules. I do think, though, that we need to be concerned about repeat players who come into court frequently and testify. Because if you eliminate all ways of attacking credibility other than bias and inconsistencies and things like that, which I would absolutely keep in the system, you might miss these repeat players who are coming in to testify. Maybe they're police officers, maybe they're experts. So I propose a pretty limited rule that's called evidence of lying under oath, which would say a witness, not the defendant, may be impeached with evidence that he or she was untruthful about a material matter when making a statement under oath within the past 10 years. So what this is trying to do is get at the situation where you have a very analogous prior situation where somebody lied and to be able to use that information to make some kind of prediction about whether they are lying in a subsequent case. I'm cautious about this as well. The social science literature suggests that you need to know even more than that. But I do think it's important, given that we have a number of repeat players who may come in and may lie serially, that we have some kind of almost disincentive to them to do that. I take it that your proposal here is actually a bit of a compromise. I was originally going to ask you why your proposal was so narrow to only consider past perjury. It seemed to me that perhaps we would want to broaden it out a little bit to include things like prior false accusations or cover-ups or falsification of evidence. But you're actually saying that your proposal may be too broad in the sense that it is looking at this from all contexts or perjury in all contexts rather than the very specific instance that the prior perjury occurred. That's right. I know it may sound radical at first, but from reading as much of this actual scientific 
research on lying and propensity to lie and, and how to predict when people are going to lie. It just seems to me that you need to be incredibly specific about context in order to get anything useful out of a prior act in terms of predicting a future act. And so if you have an expert who maybe falsified a report in one kind of case, if, if you're going to use that expert in a totally different kind of case, that may not even be similar enough. But my rule would allow impeachment of that expert with the prior false testimony. But other things, falsification of documents or things where you're lying in an official capacity, but not in the courtroom are just not similar enough to give us any predictive value. Let me broaden our discussion a little bit. And let me quote a part of the last section of your article where you posit the question, why do we cling to age-old impeachment rules? And I want to give you an opportunity to answer that question. As you point out, evidence scholars and social scientists have made it quite clear that propensity evidence, regarding truthfulness at least, has very little merit. Yet these rules have an enormous amount of sticking power in the canon. If I were to place my bet, my bet would be that your proposal is highly unlikely to be accepted. Now, why is that? Why are we so wedded to these old rules that are based on assumptions that we no longer have? There are a number of explanations, and, and this really is the question, a huge question and something I've thought about a lot. And one explanation is there's just no political gain to be had from somebody going out and making a big fuss and trying to change these rules because they're obscure, they don't get a lot of public attention. And the reason that it's dangerous as a political maneuver is that if you ask, I always ask my students in the seminar I teach, if you're on a jury, you have to decide whether to believe someone, what do you want to know? And the answer is they want to know everything. They want to know as much as possible about this person when trying to decide whether they believe them. It's human intuition that we want to know more rather than less. And we're unfortunately in a system where we've, we don't allow ourselves to know all that much. And what we do allow ourselves to know is replicating these status assumptions in some pernicious ways. But getting rid of that means we would know even less. And that's counter to intuition. And then I think there's another explanation, which is why lawyers don't want to get rid of this, which is that this is a major backdoor for all kinds of propensity evidence of guilt that goes to guilt. So there are a lot of studies that have been done, and I would love to see more studies of this, kind of trying to track what are juries really doing with this information that they get through impeachment rules about prior crimes. And it seems like what they're doing is using that information to perhaps lower the burden of proof. It's easier to convict if you can get evidence of a prior conviction in about a defendant. And so if what is really going on is we're just giving jurors propensity evidence that they're using for guilt, it's powerful stuff. We're not supposed to be doing that, but it's hard to take away this back door because it's actually pretty productive. It would be shocking if it is not a big motivator for plea bargains, for example. Let me offer perhaps a more provocative theory. The persistence of these impeachment rules might suggest that the legal system doesn't really want to abandon status entirely. Normatively, and maybe from the standpoint of accuracy, but maybe not, maybe the legal system wants 
these status markers, that the public legitimacy of the system hinges somewhat on status concerns. You have a person of high social standing who is on trial, and it is difficult in terms of public legitimacy to have that person convicted on the basis of people of lower standing in the sense that they are prior felons or some other classification that we have where the person is less trustworthy. That could be happening. A way to, to reformulate that idea is that these rules help maintain legitimacy for verdicts. And one way they could do that is by making sure that we don't have the word of a lower status person being the downfall of a higher status person and that higher status people are still able to, to be the downfall of lower status people. It is a provocative theory. I think there's probably some truth to it in the sense that there's a lot of animosity towards people with prior criminal convictions. You can see with the disenfranchisement provisions and things like that, that would likely extend into a scenario like this, where once you get a verdict and the public goes back and looks at it and sees that it was someone with a prior conviction, they're not going to be happy that it was that person's word that caused the outcome. On the other hand, I'm not sure how much the public really does go back and evaluate verdicts in the vast majority of cases. So that would depend how much attention is really being paid to these kind of nuances of what evidence came in and didn't come in. Now, of course, I should also point out that this provocative theory also has a great deal of danger. Over the course of history, this reliance on status probably has a lot of its roots in discrimination. But what has effectively happened here is now we have shifted the particular statuses that we view as legitimate. So today it's criminality and prior deceitful conduct as opposed to race and gender and all the other things that might have been previously used. Right. Although I think it's important to point out that because of the sort of disparate prosecution or arrests, depending where you want to start the chain, we have statistically disparate percentages of Black people going to jail versus white people, other minorities as well. That trickles into the problem that I'm talking about here, where if you can impeach with prior convictions, you're actually ending up perpetuating some of the disparate numbers of Black people who are going to be going to jail. Or, or for example, if, if you're from a certain community, maybe all your friends or many of your friends have a prior conviction. And when it comes time that you're put on trial, you want to have those people come in and be able to vouch for you. But then they can be impeached with their prior convictions. It's sort of a, a vicious cycle in some ways that still does have a greater impact on minority communities, particularly African-American communities. And then I also talk in the paper about how through rape laws, which is a whole other huge topic, there is still sort of the idea that women who are not chaste are not credible, that you can pick out from rape shield provisions and the way that they're applied. So we're not totally out of that world yet, or if we ever will be. Let's look a little bit to the future. Let's assume that you get your way and we actually pass legislation that abolishes these propensity rules on credibility and we replace it with a very, very narrow rule about former perjury. What replaces character then? What are the tools that are going to be available? And let's say technology improves. 
are you open to using more technological solutions? So for a while, there was some talk about using fMRI as for lie detection. Are those going to be good replacements, or do you have other objections to those developments as well? That's a great question. I am right now very open to new technology that comes along that makes it easier to figure out who's lying. But of course, I would approach anything like that with a great deal of skepticism. You always have human operators. There's all this research about algorithms now and how the tendency is to feel like, oh, algorithms, they're impartial. It's just the computer figuring things out. But you have to realize that it's a human who made that algorithm and taught the computer. So I think we need to have a similar skepticism if we see new developments in lie detection. But I'm absolutely open to it. I'm open to the idea that science is going to give us some better way to do this. I would love for the rules of evidence to follow those developments after appropriate testing, although I would be shocked if they actually do follow those developments. And the question of what replaces character. In the impeachment context, there are a lot of ways that you can show somebody is lying. And in the paper, actually, I make this distinction between showing somebody is lying in that in the moment in court versus showing that the person is a liar and has the character of being a liar. It's the second thing that I'm trying to get rid of, right? But looking for lies in the courtroom is really important. And we have a lot of ways to do it. So we can show somebody has a relationship to the party or the defendant or the plaintiff, whatever it is, that would cause them to be biased. We can show they're being paid. We can show they're getting a deal. We can show that they said something totally different previously or even slightly different previously. And all of these things are great ways to show that maybe this person is actually lying right now in the moment, and we should be skeptical about them. And I actually think we'll get better at using those tools if we don't have the crutch of status and character to kind of muddy the waters and make it all about who the person is rather than about what they're actually saying in the courtroom in the moment. A final question before we wrap up. Where do you see that further work needs to be done in this space? I think you've done a lot of work on credibility and status. Where are you planning to take this next? I love that question. I mean, I'm not an empiricist, at least at the moment. Um, I'm always excited when people with those kind of skill sets try to get better evidence about what's happening, how juries are using impeachment information that they get, because I think that is probably the best way. I obviously spent a huge amount of time writing this paper and think it's important. I think the public and maybe even the judiciary is more likely to be swayed by empirics on what's actually being done with that evidence. Future directions for me. So one project that I'm going to be doing at some point is uh, looking at the relationship between the history of creditworthiness and credibility, because they actually share a definition legally. And I find that fascinating. And I think it's another way to probe what we really care about and the ways in which going back to the idea of status, the way that it was all sort of caught up in each other. So the person who should get a loan was also the person you should believe in court. And I think that's a surprising insight today, but it's something that's still kind of shaping the way that we think about credibility. And I have some other projects along those lines, but that's, that's the one that's most immediate. Well, Julia, thanks so much for coming on the show. I look forward to reading your future work on creditworthiness and credibility. Thanks so much. It's been fun. 
Julia does a wonderful job capturing the origins of the credibility character rules. Modern social science, of course, suggests that these rules are empirically suspect. Absent a very specific context, character is a terrible predictor for whether a person is lying in a particular case. But, Julia argues, that wasn't the point of the credibility rules to start. Instead, the legal system was trying to measure a witness's worth by his or her social status, or at least his or her ability to conform with social norms. As I provocatively quipped, perhaps this focus on status can be justified today on public legitimacy grounds. Yet measuring a witness's worth, not using empirically-based measures of accuracy, but rather on social standing, is a perilous affair. Not only is it profoundly anti-democratic, but it also historically has ties to discrimination of many kinds. Indeed, as Julia insightfully noted, even if we confine the rules to what are perhaps perceived as less suspect statuses today, such as having a prior conviction, the negative implications for minority or disadvantaged groups could be considerable. So we are left with Julia's proposal. Abolish the character regime as we know it, fall back on non-character-based evidence, and perhaps hope that future technology can help with credibility. That might be the theoretical ideal, but seldom does reality reflect the ideal or change to meet it. For better or for worse, I think rules 608 and 609 are here to stay. I think Julia will agree with me when I say that I am not holding my breath for reform. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.